Hi, welcome to the WellDoc podcast. We're medical students bringing you honest conversations with practicing physicians surrounding wellness in medicine. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we look to those in the field for direction and advice in achieving balance and wellness in our present and future lives. Hi everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of our podcast. Today, we'll be featuring Dr. Stallings, an internist at WMC who you might know better as our Associate Chairman of Education and Assistant Dean of Clinical Sciences. Dr. Stallings has always emphasized the importance of mental health and wellness, especially in medical education. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation to hear his thoughts. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Stallings. I just want to start out by asking kind of a broad question, start out on a good note and see what are three good things that happened to you this week? Um, I found out my mom is going to come this weekend and stay with me for months, which is awesome. My cats didn't bother me at night, so I got to actually sleep. Always fantastic. And then my, both of my kids are actually really enjoying sleeping in the same room right now. I gave my son's room to my mom. She will be there and my nine-year-old and 11-year-old will be in the same room for months. We'll see how that goes long-term. Okay, so our next question is, again, kind of broad. Um, wellness kind of has a lot of meanings to a lot of different people, and we're just curious what wellness means to you. Wellness to me is being able to balance all the things that kind of are going through your brain that you feel you have to do, along with being able to you know, take care of your body at the same time. So the, you ha- have to find a finding a way so you can be comfortable with how much work you're getting in, how much time you're getting for yourself, how much time you're giving to your loved ones and friends. So you can, when you go to bed at night, you're kind of happy with things in general. Now you're making concessions in all those different places. So how would you say that you find that balance? Balance is a tricky thing. Balance is not something that you, once you get it, you have it forever. Balance is this ever-changing. You have to constantly adapt to find the balance. So for me, there are moments where my kind of wellness balance is pretty good. And other times where I feel like it's shift being too much of one side or the other, which is a problem. And then so when I find that I, my balance is off, I've spent some time over the years trying to figure out what are the things that tend to make me imbalanced. And then I try to identify what those things are because I have a, kind of a tendency to do certain things. And then how have I, you know, found ways in the past to kind of write those, to get the balance back. And that for me is, you know, talking to my wife about it a lot um, to be able to kind of figure out an external view of what's going on. And then, you know, I talk to my, my friends as well, but it's my wife, you know, my, my best friend of the main resources for like, an objective view of me because oftentimes when your wellness is off least for me how i define my life is really not what's actually happening but then i it, it leads me to these weird assumptions that don't make sense that's fair would you be able to give some examples of what you feel like makes you imbalanced god he told me there's the uh, the bag of bricks analogy is really great and the idea is that if you're, you're walking around carrying this bag of bricks and you decided to carry the bricks in the first place and they're heavy because they're bricks and you can just decide to put the bricks down like it's your choice you're not building a house you don't need to carry them anywhere you're just carrying them around and it's really tiresome and heavy so why don't you just i mean just put it down 
the number of times I've set a deadline for myself that I can just move, but it's stressing me out. Like I, I decided by Friday, like I can just decide by next Friday and magically I feel better. Do you feel like that changed throughout your career as you're dealing with different issues and responsibilities? In med school, like your whole brain is, I want to do well on the next exam or grade. So I need to get good grades so I can get a residency spot. That's like your whole world. And then you have these peers that are with you that are doing it as well. So you can find a way to commiserate with some other med student that you're both just getting totally screwed by whatever's going on. And then you can do that commiseration piece. As a resident, it's pretty similar, but your exams are far fewer because you have the one you have the one at the very end that may you know, let you be board certified. And so you can commiserate a lot with your co-residents, which is one of my best friends remain people from residency. Once you're an attending, it's very different because there's not really an exam coming. You know, I've got 20 or so patients to see, and I have to find a way to you know, give them the best care possible. And there's the only barometer really is, are my patients doing well? Am I happy with the care I'm providing? And patients will consume every bit of energy you're willing to give them in that setting. You can call their families twice a day. There's so many things you can do to help them out, which is feels really good to have given all that energy to my patients. And I loved doing that when I was a hospitalist. But then it's the, well, I just need to call one more family. I'm going to check this patient one more time, but it's going on seven o'clock and my kids are at home. My wife's at home. <sighs> do I go home right now? Or do I do that one more thing with my patient? You know, and that was a big struggle um, to figure out how to make that balance. And then once kids get in the picture, it's a completely different piece. How long do you think it took you to figure out how to do that? Or if you feel like you have figured that out? I feel like I, I, I'm just better at it. I don't think I've actually like, I, ha I have the answer because it keeps changing. Just like if you think through like the beginning of first year, you took a while to figure things out. And then you kind of, by the end of first year, you're like, I feel okay. Like, I mean, not the bad, but I feel okay with this. And second year comes and it's completely different. And I have to get a holding method. And third year comes, you're like, oh my God, like how could this be any different and harder than anything I've ever done? And it, but it just is. It's, it's ever changing. And I, I tend to read more like kind of self-helpy, reflective, perspective books on things to figure out like, get more insight into how the human brain works, which helps me with students, but also helps me with me to figure things out so I can do better with that balance. Much like balance, um, I, I, I can stay in balance longer and get back to balance faster than I used to, but I, I definitely haven't like, mastered. Constant work in progress. Yep. Uh, so I'm curious, you mentioned some books that you like to read. Um, what books would you recommend? I always like The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. I originally read it to help me understand why students cheat on exams. And most people don't cheat because they're, you know, I almost time to cheat. It's, it's, there's some internal monologue that is, I, I want to, I, I need to be able to do well in some way they process it. I usually on exams, but more of on like quizzes and smaller things. And to get a better idea of why do people you know, do, you have that 25% fudge factor that pretty much everyone does. For everything like I've read, yeah, I've read half the book. Okay, so you're about a quarter of the way. But it was really nice to see, just even just for myself, like how because everyone lies to themselves. Like you know, why do we do that? So I can understand it in me, but also understand in students why they may kind of fudge some things a little bit and help kind of be better with that and not get angry like you're a cheater. So I know you'd like to talk about the book Anti Fragile. Do you mind explaining that a little bit? The book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. 
it was originally uh, a journal article, I forget which publication it was in, and Barack Obama complimented it, and then they wrote a whole book on it. The book is written around the kind of the way in which students that entered college around 2012-2014, their upbringing really affects how they view the world as a whole and decisions that were made that led them to be, you know, kind of the way they are. And since my medical students are those students and Barack Obama recommended it, it seems like, you know what, I should probably read that book. And so the concept there in the anti-fragile is that parenting changed for that generation of kids in a way that the parents wanted to protect them from as much as they possibly could. So that's when the helicopter parenting started to happen and kids had phones so parents could text them all the time while they're in school. How's math class doing and whatever else it was, which that is the view that kids are fragile. I have to protect the children or the child or the person from any harm because they're going to break, which isn't how it really works based on that book and the stuff it's written on is humans are anti-fragile. And that concept means I need to challenge you so you grow. So by not giving you the chance to evaluate risk on your own and decide how risky it is or possibly even get hurt in some fashion, when I, when I let you do that, make that assessment of risk on your own, let you fall on your proverbial face when you don't study properly, you will learn from that and become stronger. So you don't break because you're not fragile. You're anti-fragile. As you get challenged, you become stronger. So we have to let the learner, the student, my children learn to take risks in some form and allow them to make those mistakes so they get better and grow. If we don't let them do that, they're not going to learn to manage that mental process. So when they become professional doctors after graduating, they're still not going to know how to do it. And they're going to look for the proverbial mom or mom and dad to do it for them, which isn't helping them out. For me, it's really trying to figure out what the actual risk is if if the student or my kids make the wrong choice. So obviously there are ways that you as a dean can build opportunities for anti-fragility into our school careers, but do you think there are ways that we as students can also build those opportunities for ourselves? I think there is. And so there are certain situations when you're going to wonder, do I, do I need to ask for help in doing whatever it is, be it a medical thing at the hospital or at home or decision on studying? And try to, you know, step back and go, okay, what am I, what is the real risk and what I'm looking at, right? And it's okay to ask for people's opinion on things, like ask your peers about whatever it is. But when you don't go to proverbial mom and dad to ask for permission to do thing, or is it, you know, is it okay if I actually do that? And you make a decision on your own, which is risky. That's a time when you get to grow. There's an exam coming up for a lot of the students at near the end of December before break. So a student may decide, you know what? I want to take the exam from home, my actual home. I got approval to travel because, or I, I live as far away as humanly possible, but still in New York State. So it's a long drive, right? I don't live there now. I live on campus, but my parents are technically in a contiguous state. So I'm going to drive there. So you could A, ask me as the dean, is it okay if I drive to my parents' house six hours away or eight hours or whatever it is and take the NDME exam from there? Or you could decide, you know what? I'm still going to follow all the rules. It's still at home. I don't mind losing that study time because that's my biggest concern. And that question is, do you mind losing that much study time? But for me, I think I'll be better off taking it near my parents. I'll be much calmer because I'm losing it. And that's okay. It's within the rules. 
I'm okay with doing that. And you make the call on your own and you do it. But those little times when you're like, this is a low, not the most risky situation, but there is risk involved and deciding for yourself. And that's the whole point is you assess the risk. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I can do that. I, I, the risk isn't that huge. If like the central, the central venous catheter comes out in front of you in the hospital, you should go, oh, expletive, find a doctor, let's get this done. And if that doctor's your intern, they should go, oh, expletive, let's find a high-ranking doctor than me. Don't, because you decide, you know what, that risk is too high. It's all around, there's risk involved. I'm going to own the decision of taking that risk and the consequences that go with it. What ways do you think we can take down some barriers and boundaries for students who might have less opportunities or it might be a little harder for them? What I want to say is not going to by any means cover enough ground to fix things. I think things we can do is really be aware of when we represent patients and in cases for students, we make sure we get an broad uh, variety of different types of patients that they are people getting to see as the patients that you know that they're imagining which helps out a lot in feeling more included every patient that we discuss never looks like you or is from where you're from then you're going to feel outside when you shouldn't have to being really aware of the wording we use when we explain things um, especially with like gender pronouns and those things to be really cognizant that, that it may not mean a lot to you but it may mean a lot to somebody else. So you should make that change because it's not that hard conceptually. I think the bigger struggle is students that come in that had less opportunity before med school. And so they have less adeptness in the basic sciences or they have not as advanced study skills or they haven't done as much chemistry before they get into biochem. That is not an inherent part of them. It's that for whatever reason in their time until med school, they just didn't have all those things, or they didn't get to study, you know, they didn't do Kaplan or whatever five times before the MCAT. Um, so they're not as, their score isn't as high, which is just because they didn't have the ability to prepare because of resource differences. How, how do we help those students kind of level the playing field for them? It's really tough because the, the problem starts way before the students are ever in medical school. So things you can do. One, you have to be really aware of microaggressions and read a lot to educate yourself so you know all those sides. And a lot of soul searching on, you know, if you put up defenses about it, the help of the whole white fragility side of things. And I needed to do a lot of thinking about me as a, you know, a white male doctor and all the things that I have going for me because of just that and how that warps my view of microaggressions. I worked hard to understand my own biases. I think it helps me be a better doctor to, to know my tendencies and biases against different or four different things, um, which I think as a doctor, you should do, period. You need to know where your biases are. So when that person comes in, you can check the biases at the door. If we know, one, your own tendencies, so you can try to model proper behavior by not doing those things and realize the structural components of the system we're in and healthcare and how that disadvantages different groups. And then how can you help individuals that didn't have all those advantages going for them or have disadvantages and hurdles to get over it? And how do you help them overcome to get things that for like me as a white male was able to get without as many hurdles? So what can I do to help people that do have those disadvantages?
as a dean and educator, you've always been pretty vocal about the importance of mental health and wellness. What sparked your interest in advocating for that? All right. So in, in my family, the depression is a common occurrence. Um, and, you know, I've been on medication for depression since my family medicine rotation in third year of med school, which I started in Rain, Louisiana, which is an hour and a half away from New Orleans, this small little town. It's reportedly the frog capital of the United States. I don't know if there's a competition to decide that. Right next to it is the rice capital of the United States, also so branded themselves with that name. There's the Frog Stop Cafe because of the frog capital of the United States. Um, and, and, and med students, life is really hard. And for me, I was doing a rotation, I think it was six weeks long, to start third year of med school where I had zero other med students around me. I was sharing this like trailer home kind of thing with a 65 or so year old businessman who was helping the doctor I was working with. And so I was like, this is just really crazy. And I, I, I there's no one else here but me in this little bitty town. And it was just really hard for me. And I remember how challenging that was. And I can think of a number of my friends that had some emotional breakdown at some point during med school. And it just seems that we make med school really hard. And there are parts of med school that are really hard because they just are. If I'm going to train you to be a doctor, it's going to have to be hard. I don't have to make it harder. And so I try to think of you know, the challenges I had going through med school. And my first real like standardized patient exam, I remember failing it. And I was an EMT before, and I was had such a laser focus on how to treat patients. And I recall this patient, it's been most of 2000 and two. I recall the patient was a 20-something male who worked in a convenience store who was lifting heavy boxes and hurt his back lifting the heavy boxes and had some ridiculous pain down his one of his legs from lifting the box. Mind you, that is a long time ago. And I recall the case and the patient or the actor really well. And I was in EMT mode and I was laser focused on the acute issue. And I didn't do the whole neuro exam, which is what they wanted. I remember being so mad that they told us, don't memorize the list, just do what's appropriate. And all my friends that memorized the list rocked the exam. I, I won't memorize the list. And I failed it and had to do a video review of myself. And I was so angry. I had to meet with the dean, the, like the, the student affairs dean person. Are you okay? <laughs> like, I'm fine. This is just ridiculous. And there's just so many, and I think like I had a good education and tooling was great for me, but there were a lot of things that just didn't need to be that. And you have to give up so much to be a doctor as it is. There's so many things you've already given up just to get to medical school, let alone to get through medical school. But we have no business making people give up. So all that together, I just, it's just not worth it. There are other things to do. I don't need you to learn to you know miss weddings. And I'm not sure what triggered it. But I decided that I, I could, anyone can teach you how to do acid base. I don't need me to do that for you. But it's really difficult to teach someone how to decide, do I make my grandmother's birthday party? That's tough. And so I decided that I want doctors that are, I'm training to know that they can be a doctor and they don't have to miss tons of the number of doctors I've heard. I had to miss all these things. My, that's just ridiculous. Why would you miss that? That's a huge life event. You're not the only doctor in town. So I decided I would, one, try to model proper decision-making with students. So I will often mention, you know, that I 
don't do a lot of emailing or work over the weekend or that I'm going mountain biking. It's like every person in school now knows I do that and try to not give uh, which it took me a while to figure out that I, when I would like, I, when I was still in the hospital, I mean, in the, in the building, I remember there was a, a couple of years ago, there was, was with doctor when Dr. Miller was still a Dean, we had like a holiday party of sorts in the Yumi office. And I was going mountain biking with my best friend at five o'clock on that Friday because that's what I was going to do. I'm like, it was really uncomfortable because everyone's in the Yumi office area. And I go into my office, lock the door because it's right there. I just imagine me changing into my mountain bike clothes with like someone popping in. Like, that's not okay. Close the blinds, everything. And I remember I was so proud slash uncomfortable to walk out of my office carrying like a gym bag dressed in mountain bike apparel to go through all like the med ed office people including dr miller <laughs> and they all knew i was going to go around like why am i hiding this this makes like this is a good thing and to try to help students you know be a role model for them so they can make decisions later that i don't have to miss all these really important things that you're going to regret later i've got a colleague that when his second child his son was born he was on call. So he was managing calls from like the room adjacent to his wife delivering his, his son. I, like, I appreciate the giving of oneself to patients, but listen, that's a risky thing happening in there and it's magical. Put the phone down, tell them to call somebody else. Better yet, don't even answer the phone. Turn the phone off. Have them taking pictures, right? And be with your wife during your kid's birth because you shouldn't miss that. But along the way, that particular person learned and ingrained that, you know what, it's, it's so important to care for patients that I have to miss my child being born. I just, I can't get behind that. can't be part of teaching doctors to be that way. It's not okay. The other piece is, um, along with depression, suicide runs in my family. And my mom's brother, so my uncle, was a medic and had lots of substance abuse problems and didn't get the help he needed and committed suicide. And so I see that as a healthcare problem and knowing that healthcare, that physicians commit suicide, I think it's between two and three times the general population. That's terrible. And I'm gonna be part of that. I, I am unwilling to be part of indoctrinating people into that, especially if it runs in my family. So I wanna role model and support students to be able to be anti-fragile, to learn to make those decisions, to say, you know what, I know it's important that I do thing, but that's more important to me. Mm -hmm. So I should support you in doing it and how to do it properly. Thanks for sharing that. It's hard to figure out how to provide more beyond just being a role model because it's great, but it only reaches so many people. At right. The whole community support thing is huge. It's being supportive of your peers when your your colleague is saying, either as a student or as a resident, that no, I, I'm not going to go to thing because I have to work. It's like, well, okay, well, how about I cover the call for you so you can go to that important thing to Because that's what we can do. You can help out by allowing your peer to go to whatever it is they need to go to and not demanding the recovery, you know, instant recovery afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I think those demonstrating that that's important for somebody else and helping them out will go a long way. And it's little things. Um, I'll just finish up with the last two questions that we want yeah. to ask everyone. So the second last question is, if there's one thing you could tell yourself as a med student, what would it be? Wow. Definitely marry the girl from Anatomy Lab. 
because that's what I did. It was a good move. <laughs> what if there is no girl from anatomy lab? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So other than that, wow. Like the one pearl of advice, um, I think the biggest thing for me, I just to be much kinder to myself. It's a very big tendency to work really hard and then just see how I didn't reach whatever goal it was. You know, you get a 90 on a test and you just know you didn't get the last 10% right. And it's just not helpful. I've achieved a whole bunch of stuff, but it's so easy to, just, to look at what didn't I achieve, which isn't helpful. And I think med students in general, which I used to be one, we're really good at that. At yep. saying, you know, what, you know, what didn't I do? What could I have done better? Which is important to know what you could do better, but only if it's productive. And so much of, I think, at least for me, was the self-deprecating how I didn't do enough of that. If I had done these differently, I would have gotten more out of it. It has never helped me. It just made it harder to do things well. Is there something that I didn't ask you about that you wish I did ask? Wellness is tricky. I guess the only thing I want to make sure to cover is there's there's a view, this like work-life balance concept, and it's faulty in the idea that you imagine, you know, I'm trying to balance two different things on a scale, a scale with work on one side and life on the other. And then you have to you have to give from one to balance the other, and that's not how it works. It's it's just everything. It's this nice amalgamation altogether of work and life and everything. And so, how do you weave your life and your work together in a fashion that your everything seems balanced? And the more you try to compartmentalize, this is work time. This is lifetime. It, it just becomes it, it doesn't it doesn't work. It's faulty, and so you never get balance. And I think that's where a lot of people are like, well, I do a lot of yoga. I'm like, well, that's awesome. I like doing yoga too. It's good for you. And there's even research to show that it is good for you, comparable to physical therapy in some ways. But it's like when I'm at work, I hate my life. But when I go home, I do healthy things for me. You need to find a way to make your life at work enjoyable, not just tolerable. So how do you bring your wellness with you when you're in the hospital, when you're in the clinic, so that you can find ways to not feel like all work is doing is getting in the way of life because that's a recipe for disaster. Not that you shouldn't do the life stuff. That's really important. As a person right next to me, someone's running by right now, which is great right, to get a jog in, but you have to be able to be happy while you're actually doing your work as well. And it's a different kind of enjoyment fulfillment, but it's important not to view what is the arch enemy of the other. Thank you so much for taking so much time to talk. We appreciate you being an advocate as a dean and as an educator. Thank you so much, Dr. Stallings. My pleasure, Austin. Take care. And there you have it. In case you were wondering, the books Dr. Stallings recommended will be listed in the blurb for this episode. Thank you again, Dr. Stallings, for opening up important conversations and talking about your personal experiences with mental health and positive changes we can work towards. We just want to end by giving a huge, huge shout out to Matthias Palmer for the amazing audio edits and honestly for everything else he does for our school. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.